We're going to start our story today in Jordan, about 50 years ago. More specifically, in the flat in Amman in 1968. This is producer Zana Duidar. Mustafa Boali, Henny Johareya, and Sulefa Jodallah were seated at the kitchen table. The three of them were filmmakers, and they were Palestinian in origin. And that day, they were probably talking about the aftermath of the 1967 war. The 1967 war, known also as the Six-Day War, saw Israel deliver what came to be known as the Naksa, or defeat, to Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Palestine. That June, Israel occupied the whole of historical Palestine, as well as additional territory from Egypt and Syria. By the end of the war, Israel had expelled over 300,000 Palestinians from their homes, including over 130,000 who were displaced for the second time since 1948. For Mustafa, Haini, and Sulefa, this meant not being able to return to their hometowns. They'd all been photographers and filmmakers for years before they were expelled from their homes, but this war transformed their lives and their work forever. It was this moment that something called the Palestinian Film Unit was born, which would become a guerrilla film unit for about 15 years, documenting the Palestinian struggle in the late 60s and 70s. The Palestinian Film Units produced some 90 films, capturing some of the most important moments in Palestinian history. I discovered as I was working that actually uh, people do lots of things in order to replace uh, missing photos and films. This is Azal Hassan. She's a Palestinian filmmaker. So sometimes they just talk about them. They describe to you what was in the image and what was in the picture. Sometimes they act it. They also try to preserve anything they find and to restore it. Uh, In fact, it's been said that Palestinians have archive fever, which I believe in. I think there is a fever to archive everything. That need to archive your history, I think, is an easy one for us all to understand. To capture that we were here, our dreams, our struggles, the wars we lived through, the moments that shaped us, For a population that mostly has been expelled and displaced from their own country, these archives became even more important, allowing Palestinians to hold on to a memory of a place they may never see again. One day, though, these film archives, they just disappeared. Today, a story about the Palestinian film units and the search for their missing archives. I'm Hibba Fisher, and this is Kerning Cultures. Stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. (laughs) And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Producer Zaina Duidar takes it from here. Let's go back to 1968. So they started in Amman, and what they began with is making photographs. This is Nadia Yakub. I spoke to her to learn about their beginnings as a film unit. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she's the author of Palestinian Cinema in the Days of the Revolution. Sulaf Fajadallah had been trained at the Film Institute in Cairo as a cinematographer. And she began by making portraits of martyrs for Fatah. When Salefa moved to Jordan, she joined forces with Mustafa and Haini, 
to take these photos of Palestinian fighter casualties. Their first workplace was that kitchen. They would develop their photos in trays on the countertops and then use a simple kerosene heater to dry them. They would take these photos for the Fatah party, which was, and still is, a dominant group in Palestinian politics. To be clear, the reason why they were in Jordan and not Palestine was because they had been expelled from their homes and, like many Palestinians, ended up in Jordan. And then, as the events started to heat up in Jordan and the out- outbreak of the Jordanian civil war, these young people, they were on the ground there and were able to take photos, print them in this kitchen, and provide them to news agencies. Henny, Mustafa and Sulefa worked for Jordanian television, so they had access to cameras. They'd borrow these cameras from their offices to use them to work for Fatah. At the time, they called themselves the Fatah Photography Department. Henny Jauhereya wrote an article documenting their beginnings. It was published in 1980. We asked the voice actor to read some of it. The photography department supplied the Media Revolution Information Office with the Palestinian events and Fida'in activities. And as a result, the pictures of Palestinian Fida'in spread throughout the world. For the first time, the world could see Palestinian youth fighting against the Israeli army. This was a springboard that paved the way for the development of the photography department. New equipment was purchased and many revolutionaries joined. Indeed, photography had become a new weapon in the Palestinian revolution. As the group gained popularity and attention, Fatah began endorsing its work as part of its own. This meant new cameras, an audio recorder, some fancy equipment, and with that they produced their first film, which was titled No to the Peaceful Solution. The first screening of the film took place in an underground shelter full of sand and rocks. And although a humble beginning, it really marked the start of the Palestinian film unit. The Palestinian film unit wanted to represent their struggle in an entirely different way, in a way that they'd never really seen done by Palestinians before. This is the sad thing, like in the 20s and 30s, there was Palestinians who were working on... um, creating Palestinian cinema. And there was a couple of films that were made. And in 1948, during the expulsion of Palestinians, these films were left behind and they're still missing till today. You see, with the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their homes in 1948, there weren't really any Palestinian filmmakers left in Palestine. So not only had existing films been lost in the invasion, But any contemporary films or documentaries made between the 50s and late 60s were mostly filmed by outsiders, foreign filmmakers or NGOs that actually were allowed to access the country. In terms of Palestinian film that's being made, you know, there are some things that come out of Egypt, some documentaries, there's a documentary from Lebanon, and otherwise mainly it's UNRWA films that are made. UNRWA is the UN agency that's dedicated to Palestinian refugees. This is the Church of All Nations. Not far from it is an outstanding example that the spirit of charity still lives. This building is the Dar el Tifl Orphanage for Homeless Arab Refugee Children. For 300 years it had been the ancestral home of Miss Hind Husseini, an Arab lady whose name is as renowned in the Near East as that of Father Surur's for her humanitarian activities on behalf of her stricken people. 
she converted her home into a temporary sanctuary for 125 boys and girls, both Muslim and Christian. And to them all, she is mother, father, teacher, and provider. So these are films made within the United Nations Relief and Work Agency, and they're mainly made to educate, but also to fundraise. And because they were made to raise money, the UNRWA films depicted a very narrow image of Palestinians. The image of the Palestinian refugee in a tent or some kind of shell of a building is quite common. And then you've got the images of, you know, women preparing food under difficult conditions, you know, open fires and so on. The trio were very aware of this representation of Palestinians and were especially aware of it as they started to make their own films. And you can see that in his diaries, in uh, the one that are published. This is Mohanad Yaqoubi, a Palestinian filmmaker and an archivist. He's speaking about Mustafa Boali's diaries. Um, Mustafa, that's one of the film unit's founders. The two were colleagues and friends. We always question, so how do, can I use what I learned in UK, uh, in London, the colonial format of making films as well? How can we be aware of this and change it to make more a film of the aesthetics that reflects the people more than it, uh, it reflects the knowledge that he learned in the UK, for example. As Mustafa, Haney and Zulefa continued to work on their films and developing their voice, they were joined by photographers, filmmakers and sound engineers who believed in the messages they were trying to convey. But it definitely wasn't easy. There was a real shortage of material means, you know, shortage of equipment, shortage of trained people to make films, and obviously a shortage of money to devote to um, getting better equipment and so on. And then Solefa, one of the few trained cinematographers in the unit, was injured when she was shot in the head. Solefa Jadallah was wounded early on. Um, and became paralyzed. She continued to work with the film unit, and you'll see her credited as, you know, a co-writer or consultant on some of the later films. But because of her physical condition, she could no longer, you know, do the cinematography that she had been trained for. The conditions they were shooting and processing their film in were also difficult. Canisters could get lost in the middle of a shoot, or film could get damaged in the processing. At the time, just to give you an idea, they were shooting with 16mm film cameras. These cameras looked like big black boxes, basically, that you put on your shoulder. Even the most lightweight of these cameras was still incredibly heavy. Loaded with film and fitted with a lens, they could weigh as much as 20 kilograms. Also, shooting on film is hard. A reel of film, which is around 400 feet or 120-ish meters, could only shoot around 11 minutes of film. If the film unit was shooting for any longer, which they often were in intense settings, they would have to remove it from the camera and install a new reel of film before continuing. These reels of film were also very delicate and difficult to process. They went and shot footage and then some of the footage got lost or damaged in the processing and therefore they were left with maybe one out of three film canisters with which to put together a film. As they worked hard to make these films with limited resources and training, their lives were uprooted once again in September of 1970. That September, described by some as Black September, 
the Jordanian government expelled thousands of Palestinian fighters for fear that they would try to take over the kingdom. The film unit quickly had to leave as well. And there were, I think, if I remember correctly, you know, by the end, maybe six people working in the film unit. Um, and then, of course, after the civil war in Jordan, they, um, they left with the PLO and they ended up setting up again in Lebanon. So Lefa stayed behind to treat her head injury and Henny had a mix up with his travel papers and was stranded in Jordan. That left Mustafa and his then-wife Khadija Habashna to travel to Beirut to continue the work of the film unit. When they got there, they set up in a studio called Studio Balbak. When I spoke to Khadija, she told me it had state-of-the-art facilities of the time. It had an editing room and a laboratory where they could develop the films and make the artwork and slides. There, with film footage shot during Black September, Mustafa made one of the film unit's first films. It's called With Soul, With Blood. It's sort of a collage film. So it's got footage shot in Jordan, you know, during Black September. And then it's got some images drawn, uh, still photographs. There's a little play acting scene that children act. It's There's a lot of political commentary. And it's it's a pretty wild film. While the film was not widely received, Mustafa kept shooting and working on his craft. A year later, in 1972, he released a film called The Zionist Aggression. It documented the destruction by Israeli raids in Palestinian camps in Lebanon and in Syria in 1972. It starts with these beautiful landscapes of Palestine. It's hills and it's livestock. There's a farmer tending to a sheep and a young boy picking grapes from a tree. There's even Oud playing in the background as we see girls and boys playing and horses pulling carts. It's utterly calm. All of a sudden, you hear the whistle of a plane flying overhead. And two tax lights tell us that on September 8th, 1972, the Israeli Air Force attacked the civilians and the Palestinian refugee camps in both Lebanon and Syria. After that, the film changes drastically. The Oud is gone. We hear air raids and it's scenes of destructions from the bombings for another 20 minutes. It's a harrowing watch. I, I couldn't get through some of the scenes. The film circulated quite widely, actually. There were, in the Arab world, in the early days, there was the uh, Carthage Film Festival in Tunisia, which was started in 1966. There also was the Baghdad Palestine Film Festival, which was founded in the early 70s and ran throughout the decade. But beyond that, um, there were several film festivals throughout Eastern Europe where these films moved. You had the Leipzig Documentary Film Festival in East Germany, which welcomed Palestinian films. These film festivals were an important place for the film unit to show their films and to, to present this Palestinian struggle to an increasingly concerned global population. The Palestinian film unit became central then to what was known as militant cinema. Godard described militant cinema like it's, uh, it's not militant cinema by its content, but it's militant by its process as well. 
The Man Mohanad mentioned, Jean-Luc Godard, is a famous French filmmaker who is one of the most important European filmmakers in the militant cinema movement. The filmmakers are uh, also fighters who are holding cameras instead of guns. So militant cinema, it's like not the cinema of the person, it's the cinema that is affiliated itself to the revolution, to the struggles. So Palestinians did that too, the idea of carrying the camera into the battlefield, you know, the camera going along with the fighters was part of the practice of the early film unit. It was difficult and dangerous. The film unit saw themselves as a militant cinema organization. Their logo was a 16mm camera, but where you would reload the film was the barrel of a machine gun. Their ideologies and mission attracted dozens of filmmakers from around the world who wanted to learn and collaborate with those working in the film unit. Every person in the world who was a filmmaker and politically aware and, you know, joined the unit at one point in their life. So you would find that Godard, the famous French filmmaker, came and joined them for a bit. Jean Genet, lots of Egyptians, lots of Iraqis, lots of Lebanese filmmakers. So it was anyone who wants to do something different in the world. In Beirut, the film unit was expanding with local and foreign filmmakers producing films. The numbers steadily grew in the 1970s, and in 1973, they produced over 12 films. These films circulated not only in traditional film festivals, but also through these sort of solidarity movements and these networks. It was solidarity movements, it was political movements. So, for example, like there was many films in Ivory Coast and they found Palestinian films in the archive that was thrown somewhere. And that like made me think like, okay, the distribution even reached to there. Then aside from that, there were activists, Arabs living in Europe, the United States and other places, as well as solidarity activists um, who were quite interested in screening films and might hold screenings in union halls, on university campuses, community centers, and so on. Each film was copied dozens of times, and those copies were distributed across these festivals and through these networks. Soon, both Mustafa and the PLO realized the power of the film unit and institutionalized it as the Palestinian Cinema Institute in Beirut. This meant more money, more resources, and much more attention on their work. There was greater professionalization. Films were made in color, for instance, which was more expensive. There was formal training. Filmmakers were sent for film training to Moscow, for instance, or East Germany. And so you have, you know, those are those are advantages, right? The, the quality of the films, uh, the production values rose. A studio was built in 1976, where Palestinian, you know, filmmakers could process their own films and so on. Although money continued to be tight, was not as tight as it had been. Hello? Hello? Hello, Samaini? Hello? Allah, Smatik, Ayuba. This is Khadiga Habashna. She was Mustafa Bali's wife. Khadiga is a clinical psychologist by training, but she was also a founding member of the General Union of Palestinian Women, and she dedicated most of her time to them. But she always worked very closely with Mustafa and strongly supported the film unit in whatever they needed. She spoke to me from Amman, where she lives with her family. 
where we have the Palestinian Cinema Institution. We were at the first floor and the second floor. And the, the ground one, we took it and uh, made it as for training and to, to screen films. Every Thursday uh, from our films or from our uh, friends' films. In 1976, three years after the film unit became the Cinema Institute, Khadiga realized that they now had too many films. They had films that they filmed themselves, they had films that their partners and friends had made, and they even had some archival films of Palestine before the 1960s. She decided to start the Archive and Cinematheque Department at the Cinema Institute in order to be able to formally archive these films, not only for themselves, but also for future generations. Khadiga invested a lot of her time and effort to make sure that this archive was appropriately kept and indexed. She had to categorize thousands of meters of film manually. It took around six to seven months until to see everything. And what helped to arrange it is that we got uh, a Maviola editing machine that you can see the films uh, or the materials to, to really arrange or index. Khadiga's main concern with building this archive was to index and catalog each film that's passed through the Cinema Institute. Their archive didn't just have documentations of battles or bombings and sieges. It also contained interviews with political leaders, intellectuals, academics, many of whom are now dead. It had some cultural events. And to her, it was important to have an index, as this index would act as a sort of guiding path for any future viewers or scholars, filmmakers, or even ordinary Palestinians who wanted to know more about their history. A few years later, while Khadiga was working on her second film, she visited Moscow to attend the film festival there. That June, June of 1981, Beirut was bombarded by Israeli forces. So I stopped and went back to Beirut. At that time, we were um, very uh, worried about the archive now. The Cinema Institute was becoming increasingly concerned about their archive, but they didn't know what to do about it. Look, there were, at that time, I had around 90 films. The line cut here, but she said 90 films. From our films and the other Palestinians' films, and from uh, friends' films, from uh, Soviet Union, from uh, China, Vietnam, Cuba, Argentina, uh, French people. The thing is, this archive wasn't easy to move. Each movie was made of several rolls of film, and each film was housed in a metal canister. They're round, <laughs> and uh, they're made of uh, metal. Uh, and inside them, there's the film reels. Um, yes, they are heavy, um, and they're big. It's not something you can hide easily. These canisters filled up an entire floor of the building that housed the Cinema Institute. We were thinking of uh, making copy of it and putting it outside, but we found out it cost a lot. Then we moved in a, in a certain place in uh, Alhambra area. This is a trade commercial area of Beirut and open full of hotels and uh, coffee shops and restaurants. And it's a very lively area. There is no danger there to be bombarded. Khadiga and Mustafa were worried that the Israelis would try to find their archive, and they took every possible means to protect it. 
they decided to rent out a storage unit usually used for businesses and even paid two years rent in advance so that they can store the archive there. It gets kind of hot in Beirut, which is pretty bad for film, and so they arranged for the place to have ventilation and even installed an air conditioner. They did all they could to make sure that the archive would be safe there. It was a big hall. The area that usually they use it as shelters or for garage, this area uh, prepared to be a place for the archive. And we got, you know, secure a little bit. We felt okay. Um, this was uh, the middle or late 1981. The year passed and Khadiga got back to working on her second film, which is called Women from Palestine. She had completed shooting the film and was working on the post-production. By this time, summer had come again. And when June 6th of 1982 came around, Khadiga thought it was just going to be another ordinary day. And this day, we finished our work at two o'clock and went home while eating our lunch. The air raid started bombarding Beirut and the first area was hit is beside the sport city in Beirut. They bombarded this uh, this place and the road, which we used to go through to the laboratory. It was broken and the area was full of fighters preparing themselves for uh, more raids. So we stopped working and we started to worry about our families where to move. It was a very crucial times. For some context, in June of 1982, Israel invaded southern Lebanon and began bombing Beirut. It quickly turned to a full-on invasion, and many Palestinians and Lebanese were forced to flee. As for the Palestinian film unit, Mustafa and many of the filmmakers left by ship with the PLO, and Khadiga planned on escaping with their children by road. And I had uh, left time in my passport. I could move through uh, Lebanon to Syria to Jordan. I don't think that uh, children can bear more. Having left Beirut, Khadiga constantly called the filmmakers left behind to get any sort of word about what was happening with the archives. And they told us there is arrangement with the French embassy to put their sign on the archive as if it's a store belong to the French embassy. This was when we left 1982. So far, the archives were safe. The Palestinian Cinema Institute had left some volunteers, including Omar Rashidi, a Palestinian filmmaker, and two women who worked as archivists with Khadiga to keep the archives safe. Anyhow, there came a time that the French embassy were thinking to move from Lebanon. And also the French embassies called the man just before a few days that you have to move the archive or to do something because we are leaving. Omar did his best to move the archive. He had found a Lebanese businessman who had sympathized with the filmmakers and that man volunteered his storeroom as a safe place for the films. They had to move it uh, gradually by cars, by, I don't know, it was, I used to call them and they said, we are thinking, taking it to Cyprus, we are thinking, uh, no, but no, there is no means, we are thinking to put it in this mosque or in this hospital. <laughs> uh, they did not find a place. 
you know, it was a messy, messy time, but they, they succeeded to put it in this store. Two days later, Omar and this Lebanese man were imprisoned by one of the Lebanese factions. They were imprisoned for a time. When they went out, they did not find the material in each place. It was stolen. Yeah, it was very strange that there was a room full of films. Suddenly, it's gone. What happens next after the break? Beirut 82. When we left off, the Palestinian Cinema Institute's archive had just disappeared. As the siege of Beirut ended and filmmakers returned to the city, people began searching for the lost archive. It was difficult for many of them to return to Beirut. It took Khadiga almost 20 years to be able to go back. She went back in early 2001. I went to the area. There were nothing. I moved and I made meetings with maybe 25 people from one to another, from one to another. But I didn't find any uh, information. But when I went, it was too late after uh, maybe 20 years. Azza began her own search for the lost archive in 2004. She told me that as soon as she started searching, several theories kept popping up as to where the archives could have disappeared to. Well, of course, lots of people were saying the Israelis did take them. So that was one of the stories. Um, But then you had the story of different people took some and hid them. Then you had a story that there was a fire and they all burnt. So the Israelis didn't take them. They've just burnt and disappeared. And the five stories which are there are also fascinating from the fact that they've been burned to the story that they've been buried in a graveyard. You know, it's all very dramatic stories. (laughs) But the one that I found most amazing and I filmed it is the graveyard. There was this growing theory that somehow allies of the PLO in order to hide the films from the Israelis, had buried them in the martyr's graveyard in Beirut. Because in a way, what these films were the Palestinian dream. They're called the revolutionary era in Palestinian cinema. So this revolutionary era has been buried and it lies in the martyr's graveyard. And I film it. I go to the uh, uh, martyr's graveyard and I start looking because the, uh, the story went that it's a grave that doesn't have a name. So go and look for a grave with no name and then probably the films are there. <laughs> While there were many unmarked graves, none of them had any clue to holding the archive. And Naza wasn't prepared to start digging any of them up. After 10 years now, I don't, even after 10 years, I don't say I have a catalog or I have an index. 
This is Mohan Nadegan. He's referring to a master index or master catalog of all of the films which Khadija had been working on. This index would provide them with the details of all of the films that the film unit had, including the ones that they worked on, who worked on them, where they were distributed, and any films that they may have had from partners or in their archives. We can keep working, but we are still missing the index. How can you look at it if you don't have an index, if you don't have a, a catalog that tells you wherever is where and when? Mohanad also searched for these films in collaboration with other filmmakers and archivists. Did you know the scale of the task you had set for yourself when you decided to start looking for the archives? No, I didn't. It was just like uh, an investigative game, like catching one after the other and something open to the other. But I didn't. I wasn't looking for one thing. Like it wasn't like there was like at the end the end game where you find this locker which has like two hundred and fifty films, and uh, yeah, no, it wasn't like that. Mohanad started finding films hidden in faraway places. Remember, each film was distributed across Solidarity Networks and film festivals, which means copies of these films exist all over the world. At some point, Mahanna told me that he thinks that there are over 70 copies of each film, just waiting to be found. I think, like, was one of the first places where two places, there was one place in uh, the Cine, Cine Archives. It's the archive of the French Communist Party in Paris. And there uh, I found a catalog. And in the catalog, there was a name of a film. And I asked around and they're like, yeah, maybe the film lab still has a copy. And then they managed to get a link, which was like closing after two weeks, the whole lab. <laughs> so, but it's like the, each, each one, each, each step was interesting. Like uh, going, for example, with my partner to the Palestinian embassy in Belgrade. And uh, with the ambassador there, he's just like, yeah, we have that room there in the back. Go check it. Like, yeah, we go open and there's like a lot of copies and negatives and tapes and that's been from the 70s. And and also in Japan, it's the same thing. And like in Cuba, they have another collection like that. So there are things that was found, for example, a film made by Newsreel, the American Newsreel with Robert Kramer and the group in New York in 72 and found a copy in Australia that like the Iranian Student Union in 81 borrowed the film and it stayed there. You, you've met a, a lot of different filmmakers that were part of the film unit and how did each of them kind of process that loss and like, you know, process the loss of their films and their work like you were saying? They're not really lost, because when you lose something, you might lose it by coincidence. So it's a loss for the Palestinians, but actually it's not lost. It's a loss. The problem with the loss of the films is that these amazing filmmakers suddenly had no films. They could remember their work. Uh, They could talk about it, but they couldn't show it to you. And I think this is a deeply... uh, tragic for any person it's as if you've been especially if it's your work it's not only like a hobby of course you know his whole career is based on him being a filmmaker and then most of his work is gone most recently Azza and other filmmakers found out that the films were in fact stolen by the Israeli military 
In 2017, an uh, Israeli academic and filmmaker, her name is Rona Sela. She uh, was invited to the Israeli military archive and there she found the PLO film archive, the Palestine Institute film archive. We reached out to Rona Sela for an interview, but we never heard back. Discovering that the Israelis do have the films is actually in a way a relief because it was crazy, exactly like you said. It can't be that things suddenly disappear. Uh, but you have to remember that the Palestinian have experienced the disappearance of lots of things. Um, for example, the first Palestinian film was made in the 30s and it's uh, it was left in Haifa and no one knows what happened to it. Uh, do the Israelis have it? Has it been, you know? Um, so this story of losses and of missing is continuous. Although they've now been discovered, Palestinians don't have access to them. Azza has tried on multiple occasions to get access to these films, only to be denied or to be told they don't exist, even when she knows that they're there. We may finally know where the films are, but we're no closer to reaching them. One person who has dealt with this is Bashar Shamut, whose father, Ismail Shamut, ran the Arts and Culture Department of the PLO, which worked closely with the Palestinian film unit. He's known as a renowned Palestinian painter, but very few knew that he made films as well. His aim was to speak about his people, about the disaster of his people, his love for the country, the beautiful country that has been lost. His father made over four films, and while Bashar has copies of two of them, the first two films were lost with the archives. Rana called Bashar one day. So she asked me, are you Shamut, son of Shamut? And I said yes. And she told me that she is a historian at the University of Tel Aviv. And I wanted to let you know that there are films from Ismail Shamut located in and locked inside the Israeli military archives. She gave me copies of these films because as her standing as a professor, she has the capability to get copies of these films. It's forbidden that someone, forbidden that any military institution steals any cultural or educational material from any place they occupy. But that is what Israel actually did. That's it. So at that point, I felt that we have to release these materials to the world so that they get our rights and to show how cultured and educated Palestinians were. Although Palestinians don't have access to these archives, that doesn't mean that we can't see some of these films. Copies of the films have been found all over the world, and people like Azza, Mohannad and Bashar have dedicated much of their time to restoring films, so the world can see them again. The process takes time, effort and lots of money, but being able to see these films many of them for the first time, is the most gratifying part of it all. What kind of mark did doing the search for the film unit archive leave on you? I think the mark it left is the realization of how much um, loss changes us. So in a way, and this is, I think, the most traumatic thing in the whole experience, is you're always starting all over again. Usually people need to accumulate. When you, uh, like if you're a filmmaker, you do one film and then you realize that there's things you can do differently and then you do the second and the third and you evolve. 
while in the Palestinian context, this continuous abduction of archive means that filmmakers are continuously having to start all over again. And I find this exhausting. Look, to tell you the truth, deciding to become um, a filmmaker, especially at that time, um, and in the Arab world until today, uh, is not an easy option. You really need to have um, uh, an ability to dream um, and to say, I can create something out of nothing. So I believe anyone who's involved in arts or filmmaking in the Arab world is a dreamer on a certain level. Um, But also when this dream or this act is doubled with you wanting to to narrate such a grand story, um, which is what they wanted to do, the whole Palestine film unit uh, was established on the basis that they are going to tell the world the story of Palestine. (laughs) And I think part of um, preserving your sanity uh, in a situation of war is staying in touch with your humanity. And to do that, you have to be able to reflect on situations. Um, And filmmaking is about reflection. Um, So I think it's very important. And I think without being able to make films and to tell our stories, uh, in a way, we lose and we lose our humanity and we lose ourselves. This episode was produced by Zaina Duidar with editorial support from Dana Balut, Tamara Rasamni, Nadine Shaker, Alex Atak, and myself, Hiba Fisher. Sound design by Tamara Rasamni and Mohamed Khaizat, and fact checking by Zaina Duidar. Bella Ibrahim is our wonderful marketing director, and Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. Thank you to everybody who spoke to us for this episode. Khadija Habashne, Azil Hassan, Mohanad Yaqoubi, Nadia Yaqoub, Bashar Shamut, and Monica Maughar. Thank you also to Zaydun Samarai and Mohamed Abdesalam for dubbing voices in this episode. Thank you so much to Azza for letting us use some of the sound from her film, Kings and Extras, and to Bashar for letting us use audio from his father's films. If you want to learn more about the Palestinian Film Unit, there are several things we encourage you to check out. Nadia's book, Palestinian Cinema in the Days of the Revolution, has this film, Kings and Extras, Digging for a Palestinian Image, Mohanad's film, Off Frame, a.k.a. Revolution Until Victory, Khadija's memoir, and Bashar's book, Al-Irith al-Filistini al-Mar'i wal-Nusmu'a, which you can find in Arabic. We're also going to have a link to all of these resources in this episode's description, (laughs) so you don't have to remember everything I just said. While there's no central place where you can watch the films of the film unit, many of those restored can now be found online. Bashar and Monica Maughar have also given us permission to share their films with those interested. Please let us know if you are. Um, you can hit us up on social media at Kerning Cultures or email us at info at Kerning Cultures and we can share these films with you. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new story. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>